You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Jason Ratliff, Jim Callis, Jonathan Mayo, and we are going to talk some drafts. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's eight months away, but Jim and Jonathan have been knee deep, neck deep. I'm not sure how deep they've been in the draft. Knee deep in our necks of the draft. Oh, bringing it back oh, wow. already. Yeah, let me uh, get that on my bingo card. Yeah, starting early. Uh, yeah, so the top 100 draft prospects list will be out soon, and Jim and Jonathan have been putting that together. Also, the Rule Five draft, a little different this year. Uh, no major league portion, um, but uh, that is upon us. And we will talk to the Orioles director of draft operations, Brad Selick. His team has the number one overall pick in the 2022 draft. So this uh, top 100 draft prospects list that we're putting together right now is certainly of interest uh, to Brad and his team. And we are going to take a look at some of the youngest hitters on each team's top 30 prospects list. And then we'll wrap up by answering a question or two in the mailbag. So yeah, Jim, Jonathan, knee deep in your neck of the draft. I, I would, I guess at this point, maybe only knee deep. That, I guess that's right. But uh, we do this every year. We put out the initial draft top prospects list in December. Uh, we used to put out a top 50. Now it's, We've expanded that to 100. We'll then expand that uh, a couple times before we get to uh, the draft itself. Uh, but this, you know, for me anyway, I, and I think for a lot of uh, baseball fans and, and draft heads, uh, is an exciting time of the year when you get that first look at the draft list. And before we get into any particulars, uh, can you guys tell us, how this draft class looks in the early going. I think it's different than the last couple we've seen. I think it's a really deep class, especially at the top in terms of hitters, both on the high school side and, and the college side. I mean, almost as soon as last year's draft ended and we started talking a little bit about this year's draft, almost everybody I talked to kind of made the joke, hey, the position players are going to be a lot better next year. So people are really excited about that. And then the flip side is while there's high school pitching depth, you know, I think that's the demographic that scares teams the most. And those guys don't always go as high as they should go. And the college pitchers are just wide open because almost all of the top names have a serious health question. So how, how'd I do, Jonathan? Is that an accurate yeah, breakdown? I think, uh, I think you kind of nailed it, you know, from, from what we're looking at right now. And, and there's always the caveat that things can, can change, right. You know, that we, we could have some of these college arms, you know, take steps forward. And, uh, but I don't, even if they do, I don't, you know, they, they can only step forward so much you're not gonna have a guy suddenly throwing, you know, 10 miles an hour faster, you know, anything like that. Like it is very hitter heavy, uh, particularly at the top. Um, and then throughout, I just think there are a lot of really interesting bats and in you know, I think you know one of the 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 biggest sort of general differences is we're coming off of very close to a normal summer, 
uh, you know, uh, not that we're past COVID, but in terms of the amateur scouting world, it was back to business as usual when, you know, heading at this time last year, uh, you know, Jim, correct me if I'm wrong, but when talking to scouts about the list and, and talking to scouting directors, there was a lot of sort of, uh, shrugs, you know, uh, if we could have, you know, ranked guys with shruggy emojis, I think we, you know, we probably would have done that because the high schoolers people were familiar with because much of the summer showcase circuit had, had taken place, but a lot of the other stuff had not, you know, there was no Cape Cod league, um, you know, so, and, 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 and things of that nature. So the college players, were kind of an unknown quantity until the spring. Now there was a, a full spring and teams caught up, but I feel that there is a much firm understanding of what this class looks like a, a firmer understanding than previously because of, of, you know, pandemic related shutdowns and concerns. No, I think that's a good point. I mean, this is really the first, I guess, normal, offseason as it relates to the draft since the 2019 draft. And, and you're right. Cause last year when we were doing this and you talk about college guys, they might be like, Oh, I saw this guy like a couple times in a pop-up, you know, summer circuit league uh, on the college side, or I saw this guy briefly in fall ball. I mean, there were some schools, you know, Texas last year didn't let any scouts in for fall ball. So there were some guys like with, um, with Ty Madden, the only place Ty Madden had been seen since the pandemic shutdown in March was he did some informal workouts against some local hitters. So yeah, I, I feel like, like we did, we, we got, we, we did not get this year what we got the last couple of years, which was just guys not having like a, a full amount of, of, of background on guys. Like I think people are much more comfortable with the college crop this year than they were a year ago. I was just looking at, uh, the early mock draft that we do in December when we put out the new list. And, you know, obviously you're not talking to clubs about who might go where at that point, but it's largely based off of the list and looking at last year's list. Um, Kumar Rocker, number one, Jordan Lawler, number two, Adrian Del Castillo, number three, Judd Fabian, number four, Jaden Hill, number five, Matt McClain, number six, Jack Leiter, number seven, Marcelo Meyer, Number eight, Alex Benellis, number nine, and the aforementioned Ty Madden, number 10. I think if I'm not only mistaken, half those guys went in the first round. Yeah, I was going to say, I think only uh, three of them went in the in the top 10, half in the first round. I mean, you know, some of there's some injury related, but a lot a lot of that was, uh, I think, performance related as well. No. Yeah, and I think last year, one thing that, again, should be more normal this year is a lot of hitters, I mean, Del Castillo and Fabian Benellis all fell out of the first round. Um, a lot of the hitters got off to really slow starts last year. And I think that was because without the college summer circuits, a lot of your college hitters outside of, of fall baseball hadn't played in 11 months. And I think it's more difficult to replicate facing live quality pitching and game situations for hitters is for pitchers to work on their stuff. Like you can throw bullpens, you can, you know, with Rapsodo and Trackman, look at the shape of pitches and how they're spinning and that type of stuff. But it just seemed like a lot of the better college hitters got off to slow starts. And frankly, I think we saw some of that in the minor leagues too. It, it just took hitters a while to catch up again to the pitchers 
once we got the college season going again after a month of, of just a month of play the year before and the minor league season going again after having no minor league season the year before. Yeah, I would say, I mean, without looking at previous years, because I mean, I think the the list often changes and can change quite a bit, but because of the sort of aforementioned uh, unknown factors, there was, it was a little more throwing darts, uh, you know, with the, with the college guys. And, um, you know, we, we didn't, you know, we didn't know what they were going to look like because they didn't, you know, we, Adrian Del Castillo didn't spend the summer on team USA or in the Cape. Um, now had he gone out and performed like people thought he was going to then, you know, yeah. So that's where the performance comes in, but we didn't even get a sense you know, or, or an ability to sort of shift based on the summer performance, and nor did we have any idea how that, how the time off was you know, going to impact different kinds of players differently. Yeah, I don't think uh, anyone was uh, coming close to guaranteeing that Kumar Rocker was going to go number one overall at uh, this point last year, um, but he came out of the gates roaring, and uh, you know he had a very good season. Um, this year's class at this point, uh, how many different players, uh, could you see in the conversation to go number one overall, or just who are some of those players? Would you say Jonathan six, maybe five or six, maybe, you know, depending on what kind of direction, you know, the Orioles want to, to go in. Um, Yeah. I, th- I think that's right. With another subset of guys who I could see if they took off in the spring, kind of moving into into that conversation. Um, I, I guess we'll we'll find out here in a few minutes when we talk to Brad Seelock. He'll just tell us who they're going to take. That's right. Yeah, he he. I think he guaranteed that he'll let us know. They've um, already made up their mind. They're already you know finalizing the deal and then planning what they're they have the jersey. They have the jersey with his name on the back of it already. So you got to be ahead I, on this stuff. To 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 answer the sort of part of your question, Jason, you said, you know, who are some of the guys, um, you know, the, the Georgia high school ranks are it's really deep. Jim's very busy um, as he, he handles Georgia. But, uh, you know, the the two players at the top of the draft and, and Jimmy, I'll let you know, I'll defer to you and let you sort of talk about them. But you have Drew Jones. That's Andrew Jones's son. Uh you know, outfielder, and then Tamar Johnson, uh, who's a, a an infielder, primarily a second baseman, both a very talented hitters from the Georgia prep ranks. Yeah, and I mean, you you could see the top three guys could all be high school position players because I think Elijah Green, who's you know in your territory, Jonathan IMG Academy in Florida. I mean, th- th- these are all candidates to go number one. I mean, you know, Tamar Johnson is. Well, I haven't guessed I re- reconciled. He, he's the best high school hitter in a while. And I don't know who the la- best. <laughs> I can't tell you since who, cause I don't know who, who that guy would be, but I mean, he, I mean, it's, you'll get guys who'll put 80 on the hit tool. Um, you know, we might go 70 on the hit tool when we, when we grade him out, which I don't think we've ever done for a high school player. Um, you've got Drew Jones, who's the son of, of Andrew Jones, who, you know, could be, 60s and 70s across the board and frankly probably looks a lot like his dad did at the same age um he's the same type of player like really gifted center fielder ton of power can run throw I, i've also had guys tell me he's a like he's not going to play shortstop but he could play shortstop he, he goes to a 
a private school where Jeff Blauser's kid is a shortstop and is a really good shortstop. But guys say, like, he's legit. When you watch him take infield, you could draft this guy high as a shortstop if you wanted. And then Elijah Green probably has the best all-around tools of any of those three guys, Jonathan, but probably, you know, a few more questions on the swing and miss compared to the other two. Yeah, I think that's the one thing holding him back. Um, other tools-wise, he might be at the top, and and it's shown up. You know, sometimes you get these incredibly raw toolsy guys, and you only see it in batting practice, you know, or every once in a while. I think, uh, you know, there are some questions with Elijah Green uh, in, in the whiff rate that will have to be answered. And he's, you know, at IMG Academy, he's going to face good competition in Florida in the spring. So he'll be tested and, and you'll get a sense. Um, but his tools have shown up. I mean, he's hit homers against good competition. He's played very good outfield. He's shown, you know, close to elite level speed. All those things have shown up and, you know, he, he has some aptitude. This isn't a guy who is just, uh, you know, a, a tremendous athlete with no feel. Uh, it's just that one, currently that one question about the swing and miss that is holding him maybe a touch back behind, you know, the, the, the two guys from, from Georgia, and then there are the college bats. Um, you, you want to start with Jacob Berry since I, I was so kind to allow him to transfer from my part of the country to yours? Yeah, yeah, I, I think Jacob Berry is the top – well, he's the top college bat. You know, he, he's you – know, I've had him described as kind of a, a switch-hitting version of Andrew Vaughn who was, you know, went number three in the draft, hit for average, hit for power, good approach. That's Jacob Berry. The question is, where do you play him? I think he's more athletic than Andrew Vaughn was. I mean, Andrew Vaughn played left field this year, played the outfield corners out of need in the big leagues, not particularly well. Andrew Vaughn is really a first baseman only going forward. Jacob Berry might be able to play third base. He might be able to play right field. There's a chance he winds up at first base. But what you're really buying there is a premium premium college bat. You know, he's a switch hitter. Um, you know, he's going to be in the SEC. You know, he was great as a freshman at Arizona, uh, followed, you know, the coach Jay Johnson to Baton Rouge when, when Jay went from Tucson to Baton Rouge as well. Um, so he's the best bat, I think, in the college ranks, Jonathan, but not necessarily the most well-rounded player. Right. Yeah. I mean, in you know, Brooks Lee, from a pure hit tool standpoint, is probably not too far behind. Uh, and he was, if I recall correctly, I don't have it up in front of me, but he was number one on, on the college list you did at the end of the summer. And that's just based on summer performance. But, <clears throat> you know, he, he was at Cal Poly, uh, was a very good high school prospect uh, back in 2019, uh, but wanted to go play for his father, who is the head coach at Cal Poly. Uh, he can really, really hit. You know, you talk to any scouts about Brooks Lee, and the first thing they talk about are, are, are his bat-to-ball skills. He just has an innate ability to make contact. He's got an advanced approach. There's power there, and there's more to come. Uh, you know, the one thing with him is that, you know, he's listed as a shortstop. He plays shortstop at Cal Poly. He is not going to play shortstop in all likelihood at the at the next level. Uh, the good thing is he probably moves to third and could be a plus defender at third. You know, he's, he, he's got good hands. He's got good footwork. Uh, he's got strong enough arm. I mean, all of it works. Uh, it's just that I think he's 
becoming too physical to play short. Uh, I think the offensive profile is going to work very, very well at, at third. So I think he's the kind of guy who could come out, uh, you know, as a college performer uh, and and be in that conversation. Uh, you know, if uh, you know, I think it'll be an interesting conversation. Teams picking at the top, not just the Orioles, just in general, in terms of well. We like the sort of safety of a college bat. And if Jacob Berry and Brooks Lee both go out and do what they're capable of uh, offensively, I think it's going to be an interesting conversation. And I think Jace Young is, is, is very similar to Brooks Lee at Texas Tech. I think Brooks Lee's got a better chance to play shortstop the next level, whereas Jace Young, I, you know, I think with Brooks Lee, you know, he's kind of what, a fringy to average runner, and so is Jace Young, but Brooks Lee has a better arm. But Jace Young is probably a tick less pure hitter than Brooks Lee and maybe has a tick more power, very polished bat, um, advanced approach. He's another guy who could be in that mix. And then my – I wouldn't say he's in the conversation right now, Jonathan, but my my, my sleeper, if we're, if we're picking – well, I'll put you on the spot too. Um, we're, we're, uh, if you had to pick a sleeper uh, to go number one right now, I think mine would be Chase DeLouder. Um who was really good last year, James Madison, but they only played a 28-game schedule. Um, he was the best power hitter in the Cape Cod League over the summer. And he's he's a really good athlete for a six foot four, 235-pounder. I just think guys need to see him a little bit more after the Cape. And if he had a big year, I, I think Chase DeLouder could, could play his way into that discussion. Is there anybody else you would put no, in that I mean, mix? He's, he's the kind of guy I would look at. I mean, the, the only thing that holds him back at all is, you know, competition you know not that he that doesn't face good competition at james madison but it's not a you know not a huge program not a huge conference you want to yeah i mean i I could throw brock jones into that mix um he probably doesn't quite get there but you know stanford guy um who's a very very good athlete um you kind of, you know, you could sort of describe him in the same way. I mean, there's a lot of power. If he goes out and has a huge year in the in the Pac-12 at Stanford, I, I think that he sort of could creep up into that conversation. I don't think he does, um, but the, that would be probably a sleeper pick. And, you know, it is noteworthy, we should say, that we've only talked about hitters so far. Yeah, I was just about to say, you guys have only talked about hitters so far. There is a, a pretty sizable group of college hurlers uh, that we sh- that come up right about this point in the list. And then would you say that the best overall pitcher at this point in the draft class uh, is a high schooler? I would say that. Would you, Jonathan? Yeah, without question. I, I think it's Dylan Lesko, and I, and I think that, again, plays into – just the uncertainty with the college pitchers. I mean, there's some really interesting college arms, but Kumar Rocker, who didn't return to Vanderbilt, nobody knows what his health situation is exactly after the Mets pulled their offer. Uh, Connor Prelip of Alabama, I think we'd be talking about him as a potential number one overall pick. But he had Tommy John surgery last May, and he's not going to pitch at Alabama this spring. We, we may see him in the Cape League or maybe even the Draft League or, or maybe just throwing bullpens, but he, he's not going to probably pitch for the Crimson Tide during the college season. You have Payne Pellett at Arkansas could be the top college pitcher, but he had an elbow injury last spring, didn't have surgery, pitched one inning in the fall. Like, is he going to hold up? You know, we, we don't know. So I, I think with, with those questions in mind, the top pitcher is Dylan Lesko, uh, another Georgia product. 
you know, who's a three pitch guy might have the best change up in the draft. Certainly the high school ranks up to 96, you know, six, three athletic projectable throws a ton of strikes. Um, so I'd say he is the top guy, but you know, as we talk about all the time, no high school right-hander has ever gone number one overall in the draft. I don't think the Orioles who have loaded up on hitters since Michael Elias has been there are going to be the team that bucks that trend. Um, and I think frankly, just in general, a lot of teams are scared of high school pitchers at the very top of the draft. So I, I, I don't think we're going to see a pitcher go number one, unless one of these guys makes a college guys makes a tremendous return to health. Yeah. I think that's the biggest thing. It's the, if you're looking at potential pitchers to go at the very top, it's going to be a college arm. And I mean, maybe if there was like a really special high school lefty and there's some good ones, um, but they fit more into the sort of second half of the first round. Maybe, yeah. And maybe they, they float upwards if, you know, if they continue, if they have very good springs, guys coming off of good, good summers, you know, Jackson Ferris uh, comes to mind uh, in Florida, but uh Brandon Barrera is another one, but like none of them really scream. No, like they need to go at the, at the top of the draft. Let's see what happens in the, in the spring. Lesko is the only guy who really feels like he belongs in that conversation near the top. Uh, and he certainly looked the part uh, over the summer as the best pitching prospect uh, in this class. But uh, y- you know, whether he sneaks into the, into the top five, let alone the top 10, we'll have to, we'll have to wait and see. All right, well, let's take a break, come back and talk to Brad Selick, the, Director of Draft Operations for the Baltimore Orioles, who owned the number one pick in the 2022 draft. That's coming up next on the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. Welcome back to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jim Callis, Jonathan Mayo, and we are very happy to be joined by Baltimore Orioles. And I'm going to have to get your title right here, Brad. Uh, I, I think there have been some changes Director of Draft Draft Operations, Brad Selick, is that correct now? That's correct. Thanks, guys, for having me. Appreciate it. All right, and Brad, for the for the listeners out there, we should spell your name because it doesn't look like it sounds C I O L E K, and it is Selick. There's there's no third 
syllable sandwiched in there. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, I guess the best way to describe it is it's similar to Bud Selig, but you know, with the K at the end of it is is the correct way to pronounce it, like you did. All right, and you know, we uh, wanted to have you on as you are. Uh, we are now focused on the top 100 draft prospects list for 2022, and I know that this is uh, a list full of names that you are very familiar with already, and will continue to get more familiar with. Um, you are now into uh, nearly a decade mm -hmm. uh, with the Orioles and have gone through several drafts now, including a number one overall pick, and now you have another one. How does this uh, this year differ for you uh, from the last time you were sitting at 1-1? Yeah, so I would say the main difference, obviously, is uh, I have a better feel exactly for what Mike Elias and Sigmite are looking for. The first year, it was imperative for me to kind of sit back and watch and observe them, get a feel for kind of what they were looking to do, what they were looking to accomplish, and how they ultimately wanted the draft run. So now that we're essentially in our fourth draft together, I have a very good understanding of what they have in mind. And the learning curve is obviously you know, not as steep as it was my first year with those guys, but it's been a it's been a great experience working with them. Uh, thoroughly, very happy with the results thus far from our first three drafts together, and looking forward to hitting the ground running once the calendar turns to 2022. Brad, Jim Callis here, and thanks for joining us. And I always ask us if the teams were picking number one. Is is the preparation for picking number one overall really that much different, or is it just you kind of prepare the same way, and you're getting whoever you want, obviously, because nobody picks ahead of you. I mean, you guys have picked one, two, and five, I think the last three drafts. Is there any difference when you're preparing when you have the number one overall pick? Not particularly for me. Obviously, picking the top 10 selections, you kind of proceed in the same fashion as you would if you're picking 1-1. One, one. You have a certain set of guys that you really want to dig deep on, do your homework on. And ultimately, there's not too much of a difference, at least in my opinion, when you're picking one versus you know picking seven or eight. You just ultimately get the first crack at the guy that you want. Now, picking a little bit further down, as we did previously, um, prior to you know 2019, it was obviously a little bit different, and the strategy might be a little bit different. But in terms of picking the top 10, there's not too much of a difference in my mind. Brad, it's uh, Jonathan Mayo. I don't, I don't recall the name of the guy you took one one a couple years ago. What, what's he been up to? Is he doing okay? Yeah, hey, I think he's doing all right. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> he's. He's a special player, obviously very excited that, you know, his he's progressed to the minor leagues as quickly as he has, especially in a year where we didn't have minor leagues in uh, 2020. But he's a special player, uh, very excited to kind of see, you know, what he's able to do when he does get that opportunity. And he's certainly uh, he's certainly on the radar for big things coming up here in the not too distant future. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you took my completely ridiculous question and actually came up with a very thoughtful answer. Uh, but uh, in, in more seriousness, you know, obviously it's still kind of early going in terms of what this coming draft class looks like. Do you see many differences um, from the same vantage point uh, or similarities even between the, the 22 draft class and, and the one, you know, in, in 19 when, when you took Adley Rushman number one? Yeah, I would say in terms of the quality of players at the top of the draft, it's very, uh, very encouraging from what I've seen over the, you know, the past few months. There's going to be a lot of good options, and we're going to have our hands full as far as trying to figure out who's the best fit for us there. But the options, very similar to the 2019 draft, there's a lot of qual uh, quality players, and we just have to go ahead and hit the ground running and 
get the work. So. And Brad, I know we're not going to, you know, have you break down specific players uh, publicly here, you know, when you guys have the number one overall pick, but in terms of the, the class as a whole, it seems very hitter heavy at the top. Is that fair to say? I mean, we, we have a class where a lot of the college pitchers, you know, the top names have health issues and there are some, you know, outstanding high school position players, the Termar Johnsons, Drew Jones, Elijah Greens, and also some very accomplished college hitters like Jacob Berry and Brooks Lee and Jace Young. You know, looking at the at the big picture, does it seem hitter heavy at the top right now? Absolutely. I wouldn't sum it up any other way, uh, Jim. I think it's a very exciting group of players. There's some interesting high school players at the top, as you mentioned, with Elijah, Tamar, Drew Jones. And then there's also a lot of college hitters that have proven track records and have put up big numbers. So it's very exciting to kind of see what our options are available. And yeah, it's it's an encouraging sign. Uh, the 2019 class is obviously had a lot of success out of the gate. And, you know, a couple of years down the road, we might be saying the same thing about this crop of players. Yeah, Brad, when you look at your team's system and especially the players at the top, um, look at, looking at your top 30 prospects list on our site, the top seven players, each of them drafted within the first 42 picks of the draft. And that is something that can't be said for any other organization in baseball. Um, what do you, what would you say that that speaks to? I know that for years, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of involvement in the international market. And so some of that is probably related to that. Um, but when you look back at your top picks over the past five years, all of them up there among the top seven prospects uh, on the top 30 prospects list, um, has there, has there been added pressure over the years for your team without the international involvement? I wouldn't say that there's necessarily added pressure. Fortunately for myself, I've had a lot of you know good mentors and I have a solid team around me. And obviously, Michael Lys and Sig Dell come from two very you know uh, prominent organizations from Billing Within and St. Louis and Houston. So having the ability to pick their brains helped on a lot of fronts. But in terms of you know where we're at in the international market, uh, Kobe Perez and his team have done an outstanding job, and those guys, um, you know, the few last few classes and uh, Miracle Hernandez and also Basayo and other guys that you know are going to be making their way stateside. There's going to be a lot to be excited about on that front as well. In terms of the domestic guys, it's obviously very encouraging that you have you know seven of the top ten um, drafted players in, in your guys' overall rankings and. You know, clearly uh, it helps a pick at the top of the draft. But bottom line that we always kind of harp on here is we have a process from beginning to end. We stick to that process. And, you know, bottom line, we're always trying to look to add value throughout the system. I think we've done a good job as that as well. And in 2020, we took two high upside guys in Kobe Mayo and Carter Baumler. And Kobe got off to an outstanding start in the FCL. And I'm very excited to see kind of what Carter does out of the gate as well uh, after recovering from Tommy John. So, I mean, there's a lot to be excited about here in our, in our development system. Our coaches do a great job of getting every ounce of potential out of these guys. And bottom line, we just, we have to keep it going because we know that the cards are kind of stacked against us, obviously, and in the division, uh, in our division. So, but I would just say that it speaks obviously to the magnitude of the hard work um, and the team effort that we have here in the front office and also with our analysts and our scouts with the boots on the ground. Brad, I, I know that, you, you know, you can't 
have a, a real timeline because there's no you know finishing point. You don't know when guys are going to be ready, and and obviously the work of a of a scout is never done. Uh, I remember when you know when I first started really focusing on the draft, I was always amazed that you know a draft would end and maybe you catch your breath for about ten minutes, and then you got to start working you know on the summer showcase and things like that. That said, since you know you've been there, kind of. Uh, from from the beginning, especially from the you know from day one when when Mike Elias and, and Sig came in, like where do you think things are in terms of of the, that that rebuilding process? Because you were starting from I don't want to say from nothing because there have been some players who have who have come up who are who are acquired and you know drafted be before Mike came in. But you know you mentioned that you think that you know, things are going well. Uh, and that you have a process, but where um, in that process's timeline do you do you think the organization is currently? Yeah, John, that's a great question. I'm always kind of careful never, obviously, to allude to an artificial timeline, but there's been a lot of growth on the developmental side with the guys that we've drafted. The Jordan Westbergs, the Gunnar Hendersons have kind of skyrocketed up the ranks. Kyle Stowers is another guy that had a great uh, year this year and you know got a crack at a couple games in the Arizona Fall League. So I would just say this. I know it's been a long road for our fans and our fan base, and I know that they want to see a winner. But, you know, bottom line is Mike had a vision when he came here. He knew, you know, he told our fan base that there were going to be some years where it was going to be tough. But bottom line is that we never want to go through this process again. And I think as far as what's going on, you know, down on the farm the last few years and how these guys have thrived and played is, you know, things are pointing in the right direction. So, uh, hopefully we'll see a few of these guys in the not too distant future on the major league roster. And, you know, uh, there's obviously a lot to be excited about. Brad, I wanted to circle back to the, to the number one pick in, in 2019 again, and just kind of the way the, the, the process works at what point, at what point did you guys know the number one pick was going to be Adley Rutschman? Cause as you mentioned, you had some really good options that year. I mean, I think Adley is probably the best, all-around catching prospect to come out of the draft in the 30 years I've been covering it. But you also had Bobby Wood Jr., who's one of the more talented shortstops. You had Andrew Vaughn, who's one of the better college hitters. You know, J.J. Blade, Riley Green, C.J. Abrams. When did you guys know it was going to be Adley Rutschman? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we obviously went back and forth extensively, had a lot of internal discussions. And, you know, obviously that was a decision that Mike, Mike ultimately made with all the feedback from our scouts and also on the analytic front. But it basically was we discussed things all the way down till the day of. And as you mentioned, we had a lot of interesting and intriguing options, but we also liked how, you know, the depth of that class looked beyond our selection in one one and ultimately kind of knowing what was behind us and what may have been available. We were clearly excited to net a guy with high upside like Gunnar Henderson and obviously a guy that has a proven track record in the Pac-12 like Kyle Stowers. So it was essentially a uh, day of decision, but we discussed it, you know, at length and went back and forth. And ultimately, we're really excited about those crop players that we got from that draft class. We were talking to Brad Selig, the uh, scouting director for the Baltimore Orioles. And uh, I want to follow up with a, a similar question and just move one year forward. You didn't have the number one overall pick, but you had number two um, and took Heston Kirstad there. And I'm, I'm similar how that was different in terms of when you knew you were making that pick, when you, you know, did you have an idea in advance that Torkelson was going to go number one? And also curious how Heston is doing now since we have yet to see him and, um, you know, he's gone through some difficulties um, since being drafted. So just curious on an update from about him. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the 2020 draft is kind of hard to compare in my mind to any other draft I've been a part of because of the fact that we had a very limited sample size. We had four weeks of the Division One season, and a lot of high school players didn't even get a chance to play out their season because of you know the shutdown, multiple shutdowns across the country. So I would just say in terms of preparing for that, we essentially relied heavily on our analytics department, you know, relied on a lot of their forecast models to try to figure out if things were to play out in a full regular season, how things would look at the end of the collegiate season. And we had no idea what Detroit was doing. They kind of kept, you know, um, everything as far as what they planned to do um, under wraps until the pick was announced. But we felt really good as far as what Heston brought to the table. He's an impact bat, has the innate ability to make contact and drive the ball with authority, um, double plus potential, raw power, foul pull to foul pull. And he did it in pretty much the most competitive environment you can you can have in the SEC. So uh, obviously, in terms of him being sidelined, it's obviously nothing that we would have ever expected. And I know, looting back to what Michael Elias, uh, you know, talked about well, with our media members, he did take some swings down at, um, in instructional league, and he looks great for a guy that has been kind of on the sideline. So we're really excited to kind of see what the future has in store for him once we get him going. It'll be interesting to see, you know, with him and then Colton Cowser, your first rounder from from last year, kind of being able to progress uh, together uh, as, as you know those college bats. Brad, you, you kind of touched on something I wanted to ask you about, and you're seeing a 2020. You had to lean very heavily on on the analytics department. I'm just curious if you can talk a little bit about the the dynamic with those different pieces. I think there is this perception that. Uh, you know, analytics departments and scouting departments, you know, at times are at odds with each other. Uh, I think in today's day and age, the teams that do it the best are the teams that find that, uh, you know, that kind of hybrid approach. C- can you sort of discuss what the evolution of that has been like, especially since you started working with with Mike and Sig? You know, I know that that first year, uh, because it was kind of somewhat last minute in 19, you know, Mike kind of took the reins quite a bit, um, but you know, maybe what the, the, the dynamic and what the working relationship with, with Mike at the top and, and Sig from the sort of more analytics side and, and you running the scouting department and how, how that's all worked together as you, you know, try to, to rebuild this organization. Yeah, absolutely. In, in terms of just from the scouting standpoint, we felt that we've always been really operationally efficient, very well organized and have a plan out of the gate. The one thing that we truly lacked was firepower on the analytics front. And that's kind of where Mike and and Sig came in. They more or less uh, hired a couple of quality analysts to help us out, kind of uh, build a roadmap for each and every draft. And um, we more or less had to kind of revamp our own internal system. But uh, we have a very unique setup, obviously, and a lot of teams are, are, you know, going this direction as well. We have a team of devoted scouting analysts, and what their primary role is, is to essentially uh, look at this data, all the data that we're getting from third-party vendors, from look at our scouts reports, and kind of act in a hybrid role, more or less kind of look at things through the lens of a scout, and they also go out and take a look at these guys as well with our scouts. And also on the flip side, take a look at the, you know, ball tracking data we get, any other metrics that are interesting, and more or less trying to wrap it up and encapsulate it into one final decision in terms of evaluating each player and slotting them accordingly. So 
it's a very daunting challenge. There's a lot of moving parts and amateur baseball the last decade or so, there's just more and more data that's becoming prevalent that we have to take into account. But um, it's basically an annual thing where we kind of have to take a step back, try to figure out, okay, what do we do well? What do we not do well? And then you know, move for, moving forward, try to come up with a better plan. But um, obviously with how things have worked thus far, the last few drafts, very excited with the results, but it's something that's always a constant work in progress. Brad, I'm going to ask you a question I have Orioles fans ask me a lot, you know, and that question is, is to whether you guys are particularly focusing on hitters in the early rounds of the draft, because, you know, since Mike and Sig have been there, you know, that that has been the case. The previous two drafts, the Orioles first round picks were pitchers, Grayson Rodriguez, who's now the best pitching prospect in baseball, and D.L. Hall, who, who's one of the better lefties. But is that – are you guys targeting hitters specifically now in the early rounds, or is that just the way the, the board has worked out? Yeah, so uh, regarding the drafts with Mike, Mike and Sig, you know, and I, I understand obviously there's going to be some heightened scrutiny because of how the picks have fallen. But what I will say this is that we've done a lot of extensive work, or I should say our analytics department under Sig – and Michael Weiss have done extensive work and research and the risk associated with taking certain you know, players at certain points in the draft. Now, that's not to say that we'll shy away necessarily from a pitcher in the top few rounds, but that is something that we have to take in mind and take into account. We also have you know, the devoted analyst team that I mentioned previously that overlook you know, these guys, uh, pitchers, their pitch arsenals, mechanics and work in conjunction with our scouts and development staff to try to see what the upside is for essentially every pitcher that our scouts have turned in. So I'll also say that um, it's not necessarily our strategy year in, year out, because prior to Mike's arrival, as you mentioned, Jim, there, there was a lot of emphasis placed on drafting pitchers. And we feel really good about you know the arms that are higher up uh, in the minors. And at the same time, we actually think that there's some value added with some pitchers that you know we've taken as undrafted free agents guys like Brandon Young, Noah DeNoyer and then also a couple guys that our front office acquired in Zach Peak and Gene Pinto. So um I understand you know the scrutiny there and I, I wouldn't say that we shy away necessarily from pitchers uh but you know we obviously take everything into account and we rely on the expertise from our analytics department when we do kind of shape our board. Brad you talked about bringing in those heavy hitters on the analytics side and SIG and, and Mike. And I would imagine that had to be uh, something that you were excited about as you have uh, sort of similar background, uh, worked as an analyst at Bloomberg Sports in, in, in a little sabbatical between your baseball stints and an MBA in computer information systems. Uh, I would imagine that's a, a pretty good fit. Yeah, it's, it's been outstanding, as I mentioned. I mean, the fact that whatever what they were able to bring over with their expertise and, as I mentioned, revamping our system as far as, you know, people that crave information and analytics and data points, it's essentially a dream come true. And, and the best part is, you know, with how smart uh, Mike and Sig are, they're always very open-minded. They're always willing to listen and lend an ear. So it truly is the best of both worlds. Um, but as you mentioned, it's uh, I'm very blessed to be in this position and I have a great team around me. So it's been a tremendous experience thus far. Well, Brad, thanks very much for joining us. We can't let you go. We, we talk about your background in computer information systems and analytics. We can't let you go without talking a little bit about Ozzy the Cougar. <laughs> what do you got for me? 
you you have to be you have to be the only uh, scouting director in, in baseball who's donned a minor league mascot uniform. W- w- wouldn't you think? Uh, probably, you know, I'm, I'm probably have to take your guys where I haven't done a lot of extensive research there, <laughs> but you know, I would say this, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually glad that I got that opportunity because I always wanted to work in sports. I wasn't certain what direction I wanted to go. And I was fortunate enough that, uh, Curtis Hogg with the Kane County Cougars gave me that opportunity as, as an intern in high school. And it more or less kind of shaped me as far as, you know, um, doing whatever it took to get my foot in the door. And if you had told me then, obviously, I'd be where I am now. Um, I probably wouldn't have believed you. This wasn't obviously the end game, but sometimes that's just how things things turn out. So, but yeah, I think it's fair to say that um, in terms of, uh, you know, other colleagues with, or I should say, uh, other other directors around the game, I probably am one of the, one of the only one that has had that experience. But it just goes to show you with the direction the game is trending that it doesn't matter where you come from as long as you're willing to work hard and listen, you know, uh, great things can happen. So, Yeah, more, more than one way to get your foot in the door for sure. Brad, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. We're going to take a break. And we'll be back on the MLB Pipeline Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Thanks again to Brad Seelig for joining us here on the MLB Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo. We talked a lot of draft here and... Uh, we are excited that there will be a draft, top 100 draft prospects show on MLB Network next week. Jim and Jonathan joining Greg Amsinger and Harold, Harold Reynolds to break down this year's draft class. You can watch a bunch of video on these players that we've been talking about today. So stay tuned to uh, MLB Network for that next week. We should also make a quick mention of the Rule 5 draft um, that's, you know, held at the winter meetings every year. Uh, but due to the lockout, there is no major league portion of the rule five draft. So what exactly does that mean? There is still going to be a rule five draft, but how's that going to work? Well, it's, oh, go ahead, Jonathan. Now, you're, you're much more the rule five fan. Than I am, rule, so well, that's fighting over the rule five. That is setting the bar extremely low, but sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's always been the minor league phase of the rule five draft, Uh, The major league phase tends to get most of the attention because uh, those are the guys who you see in big league spring training and some of whom, you know, make big league rosters and, and, and all that. The minor league phase uh, gets less fanfare. Guys don't need to be uh, protected, you know, on on a certain, certain level. Uh, It costs less to take a guy in the, in the minor league phases and you can put them anywhere in your minor league system. Uh, you know, with the major league phase, you take a guy, he's got to make the big league team or you got to offer him back. You take a guy in the minor league phase, you have him, uh, and you can, you can put him at, a, at whatever level you see fit. Now, 
And one it, thing, Jonathan, I want to throw in real quick. Yeah. Because you know I love the Rule 5. Sure. The guys who are eligible for the minor league phase are not only not protected on the 40-man roster, the big league roster, they're not protected on the 38-man AAA roster. So there's a second roster. Like, if you're protected on the AAA roster, you're eligible for the major league phase, but you would it. not be able eligible for the minor league phase. So these are guys who essentially are not considered one of the top 78 or so players by their organization. So there you go. So yeah, you're, you're digging a, a little bit deeper, um, you know, more often than not, you don't hear much from these players again, but on occasion guys do, you know, end up developing. Sometimes it just takes guys longer. Quick quiz, uh, quick quiz for you guys. Most prominent player taken in last year's minor league rule five draft. Most prominent. Do you, either of you have any idea? And if not, I'll give you a clue that will make Russell you Wilson. Happy. He's always my guess. Threw a no hitter in his first big league start. Tyler Gilbert of the Diamondbacks was a minor league rule five pick and threw a no hitter in his first big league start. Wow. See, I so was going to go way. Yeah. I was kind of go way back because I, you know, uh, over the years I've done different looks at sort of the best rule five picks of all time. And uh, I believe Fernando Vino was a minor league rule five pick. Justin um, Bohr was one that jumps out to me. Yeah. So, got, you know, guys have gone on to become big leaguers. It, it's fewer it's very, and far between, yeah. but it does happen. I mean, like, like, I don't know how many guys will be drafted in this year's minor league rule five draft. The odds are that one or two of them will have their day in, you know, I mean, probably a couple more than that might play in the big leagues, but one or two of them might do something notable, you know, in the big leagues. And the interesting thing that, you know, nobody, nobody loves rule five draft more than baseball America's JJ Cooper. And it'll shock you to know that he has a, a big minor league rule five draft preview. And he points <laughs> out, and I hadn't thought about this because of the order we're doing this in, because we're going to get a major league rule five draft once the lockout ends, whenever that is conceivably, a team could take a player in the minor league phase of the Rule 5 draft and then lose him in the major league phase of the Rule 5 draft because wow. they're doing it in reverse order this year. That hurt my head. I know. All right. Let's move on from the Rule 5 draft, shall we? Okay, let's talk about some young hitting prospects. We're currently working on a story that you can find uh, coming up soon on MLB.com slash pipeline on the youngest hitting prospect in, on each team's top 30 prospects list. And Jim and Jonathan, I know you guys want to highlight a couple of these guys. Jim, let's start with you. Um, a Cub and a Red Sox. Who do you want first? Give me give me your Cub. Okay, I will go with my Cub, Christian Hernandez, who I think has a chance to perhaps be the best prospect in the 2020 2021 international class when all is said and done. The, the Cubs are really excited about him. They say he's got more upside than any international player they've signed recently. That includes guys like Eloy Jimenez and Glaber Torres who are part of the same 2013 class. He, it, it's kind of a, I think it's almost like a law that you can't mention Christian Hernandez without saying that he physically resembles a young Alex Rodriguez or Manny Machado because he does. But you know, if it all comes together with him once he gets stronger, he could be we could be talking 300 hitter, 30 homers, 20 plus steals, plays a solid shortstop. You know, if he gets really big, I mean, the bat's going to profile anywhere. You know, came in as a 17-year-old, as had a solid debut in the uh, Dominican Summer League. And I think once 
Brennan Davis graduates to the big leagues at some point next year. Christian Hernandez is probably the top prospect in the system. And he's just 17. He's got to be one of the youngest players on any team list, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the the story is going to be essentially international players signed this year. And for the most part, high school guys drafted this year, depending on the organization. But yeah, he's he's super, super young. All right, Jonathan, what do you got? I uh, Well, I, I too have one international player and one drafted player. Do you have a preference in what in which order or, you know? Well, let's go international, international, draft, draft. All right, that sounds good. So my international guy is also uh, only wow. 17. Dogs are very They're excited. very excited to hear about this player. Yes. Uh, he, uh, you know, they're, and, they're trying to get you to give his agent dog years, I think is what. 119, <laughs> right? Nicely done. I don't do math. You know that by now. Um, he, he just turned 17 in August, and it's Kristen Monroe. Uh, uh, of the Angels, I love the guys from the Bahamas. The Angels have have you know kind of have a pretty strong presence there. Uh, they have a couple some other prospects from the Bahamas there. They signed him for uh, four hundred thousand dollars in May. Uh, super athletic, a little raw, a lot of tools. Um, played shortstop, uh, but probably ends up at third. If I had to guess. Um, but has a chance to be like a, a really good athletic third baseman. Um, sort of think Cabrian Hazish, um, if it all if it all works. Uh, there's some pull power. He can, you know, there's a chance to hit. He played in the uh, in the Dominican Summer League, uh, you know, but obviously was super young uh, and only had 92 at bats. So you know, the numbers there don't mean anything. But he he can run. He already can steal a base. So kind of high upside, long way to go kind of guy who I'm excited to see get to the United States next year. And I'll, I'll just going to follow up with my draft guy. I mean, cause most of these guys I found, you know, for the, for my teams, most of the guys were international. Um, but, uh, you know, the, one of the few draft guys I had, uh, was Lonnie white, uh, for the, the pirates, uh, you know, I think we've talked a lot about what the Pirates did in last year's draft class. You know, taking Henry Davis number one overall, and then going after uh, a bunch of high-end high school guys: Anthony Solomito, the high school lefty from New Jersey; Bubba Chandler, uh, the the right-hander, high school right-hander, and then Lonnie White, who was an outfielder from Pennsylvania, who had a chance to could have gone on to Penn State to play football, um, but was signed. Uh, away from doing that, uh, you know, over slot bonus, uh, you know, ton of upside here can really run, obviously, uh, has a chance to be a plus defender in center field. He, he just, you know, he barely got his feet wet um, playing uh, in in the Florida Complex League, uh, 31 at-bats total, but uh, hit a couple homers during that time. I mean, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of upside here, uh, and I think – He's one of those guys that you always kind of wait and see uh, now that he's focusing only on baseball, how quickly those tools can can sharpen. It's not, you know, that he didn't show aptitude on, on the baseball field. He has. He just hadn't, hasn't played as much 
as some other guys who, you know, focused on baseball only because he would quickly have to go and get ready for his football season. But uh, a really high-end athlete who is 18 years old and turns 19 at the very end of this month. And I wonder if, if my draft guy is the only 2020 draft guy who's going to be part of this story. And that would be Blaze Jordan of the Red Sox, third baseman, who reclassified. He would have been in this year's draft class, but he reclassified to last year's draft. And he was 17 years old, five months when he was drafted. And he will turn 19 on December 19th, so a couple of weeks from now. And, you know, he was one of the more famous guys in that draft, as well as one of the youngest. And he's, he's known mostly for his power exploits. He won his first national home run derby at age 11, hit some 500-foot home runs at a home run derby when he was 13. He won the high school home run derby at the 2019 All-Star Game. Um, you know, wound up being a third-round pick over slot in 2020 and, and had a pretty good debut. You know, big shock. He, he hit for power in his pro debut. He had slugged 590 this summer, mostly in, in the Florida Collegiate League. You know, played nine games in low A at the end of the season and hit a couple home runs there as well. And I, and I think the encouraging thing w- with Blaze is, one, while he's a power over hit guy, he did not – you know, swing and miss excessively in his debut. He made consistent contact. He hit 324, so that was encouraging. And while there's some question as to when he's fully physically developed, is he going to wind up at third base? He has worked up. He has worked hard. He's he's lost weight. He's gotten a little quicker. He's still not super quick, but he he's he's focused on his defense. He wants to stay at third base, and I think the consensus from people who saw him this summer is that he looked better than people thought he might, you know, given his reputation as an amateur, he still may wind up at first base, but people believe he's got more of a chance to stay at third base. So he, you know, a good first pro season for blaze Jordan, the Red Sox are, are very encouraged by what they saw out of him. And the first three guys that you talked about, uh, Hernandez Monroe and white all have, ETAs of 2025. When you look at the team top 30 prospects list, plays Jordan with a 2024 ETA. Um, but these guys are obviously, uh, as that we are not going to see in the big leagues, not expecting to see in the big leagues for uh, yeah, up to four years from now. You don't have to wait that long to read the story, though, and read about these guys. That story, uh, depending on when you're listening to this, either is up already at MLB.com slash pipeline or will be soon. All right, let's wrap up by answering a question from the mailbag. Maybe we'll answer two. Uh, have one from at Cubs Central 08 uh, is the Twitter handle that uh, submitted this question and surprisingly wants to know about the Cubs. If the Cubs find themselves in the hunt next summer and decide to trade prospects for MLB talent, what position group talent in their system do you see them using to maximize a return? Well, I do our, our Cubs list, and, and I'm going to out you here, Jason. You're, you're a Cardinals fan, and you mocked the presumption that the Cubs will contend next year. Um, well, just by my, my pregnant pause in there? Are no, talking- like before we came on air. Like you 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 you, you, you mocked that idea. Well, so, my, my pregnant pause was supposed to be subtle oh, mockery. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm unsubtling <laughs> it. But I, I do agree. I, I, I find it hard to envision a scenario where the Cubs are going to be trading – prospects for veterans next year um but we'll we'll play along if they did 
and, and we and this ties in a little bit to Christian Hernandez, who I, I can't imagine they would treat him. I think the depth of their system is young middle infielders. You got Christian Hernandez. You have Ed Howard, their first-round pick from 2020. You have Reginald Preciado, who's part of the U Darvish trade. You have James Triantos, who was their second-round pick and one of the best high school hitters in last year's draft. You have, uh, you know, Kevin Maday is also another teenage middle infielder. I could go on and, and name more, but I think that's the depth of the system. So, in a scenario where they're contending and they're trading prospects, I think you know they would be packaging. You know, I think middle infielders would be a big part of that package. All right. And let's answer a second question in the mailbag. This one from the Ulysses Sect at Ulysses Sect 82 on Twitter. This is a Phillies question. With Stott, Abel, Painter, and Ohapi, do the Phillies have a light at the end of the minor league tunnel? Well, since I do the Phillies, um, I'm going to answer that one. And I think they're getting better. Uh, I mean, you know, I guess the correct answer from a player development standpoint is there's never a light at the, there's never an end of the tunnel. You're constantly trying to build, but I think there are more interesting pieces. Now, Stott and Ohapi are close to being able to contribute. So in terms of the farm system, like really helping the big league team out, uh, that's going to happen soon. Like, you know, I think Stott could, you know, end up uh, playing shortstop in 2022 in Philadelphia. Ohapi, you know, there are some catchers around. Um, I think they have four catchers uh, on the roster. And, uh, you know, so, and, he, you know, he, he really doesn't have a ton of time at the upper levels. But after seeing him in the Arizona Fall League, I don't think there's that much more for him to do to be able to contribute. Now would another year uh, at the upper levels of the minors hurt him? No, not at all. He's still uh, super young as a guy who was a high school draftee. I mean, he's only 21, so uh, it could be another year, but I think he, he looks very much like a kind of guy who could be an everyday catcher of the big leagues. You know, they spent two drafts in a row picking high school right-handers with their first-round pick that you mentioned, Mick Abel and Andrew Painter. I think both have tremendous upsides, but both could take quite some time to get there. Abel showed some glimpses in low A this past year, uh, but didn't throw a ton, uh, and Painter's just getting started. Um, You know, I'm excited to see Hans Krause, you know, make it up to the the big leagues. Uh, You know, after that, it there's a little bit of a fall off. I think there are some interesting guys, uh, but though, you know, the, the handful I think is a, uh, is a group to, to be very excited to see how, how they develop knowing, especially with those young, you know, right-handers taken out of high school that, you know, there's a reason why high school pitching is the, is considered to be the, the riskiest play in, in terms of the draft. So we're just going to have to wait and see. I kind of, read that light at the end of the tunnel to be more, is there some hope there uh, that this farm system is turning around a farm system that was ranked uh, has kind of fallen in the rankings since our 2020 preseason rankings where they were number 19, then fell to 23 in the next two rankings and all the way down to 27 in our mid season ranking last year. Could you see them uh, possibly turning a corner and, and heading back up in the farm system rankings? It's. I think it's. It's not deep enough to move up 
too much. You know, again, I think, listen, if, if Abel and Painter come out, you know, in, in 2022 and pitch very well, you know, and, and Abel was the kind of guy, both are guys who had feel for pitching. So, you know, you know, the, the sort of switch could go off and Abel could pitch his way to, to double a in 2022 say, uh, I think that would, would help. Um, you know, they have just the two top 100 guys and Stott could graduate off, which could hurt them. It's just not quite deep enough. Um, there are some interesting guys, uh, you know, behind that Johan Rojas from their international efforts, Ethan Wilson from the draft who I think could help. And I haven't given up hope on Luis Garcia, who was very highly regarded as an international signee and struggled a little bit, but he's still, he's still pretty young and, and very talented. Um, but uh, I think they're going to have to continue to add uh, as they have. I, I do like what they have done in terms of both in the draft and uh, you know taking some chances on, on those high upside arms and, and internationally where they've always had a strong presence. If they continue to do that, I think they will you know they will start to track upwards. They also have a prospect named Christian Hernandez, Jonathan. So maybe they can confuse the Cubs and like switch them. And, and, and absorb the Cubs Christian <laughs> Hernandez and send the other Christian Hernandez over to Chicago. He's not a bad pitch. I mean, you know, the, you know what no, the Cubs the, and the Cubs do need pitching. You know, they always need pitching. So, you know, that, that, that might work out. Thanks for those questions. And our thanks to Orioles scouting director, Brad Selick for joining us today. That is going to do it for this week's MLB pipeline podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week.